A perfect wrestling moment with no one around doesn't fucking matter. You need the audience reaction to to give it the sort of juice that makes it great. It's basically just Greek theater, right? Like it, it does go back to the Greek. Yo, welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week, we've got a guest on our show, Michael Luxembourg. He goes by Lux, who's a writer and director from Wisecrack, as well as the promo and video team lead for an underground wrestling group, or wrestling promotion in Austin, Texas called Party World Wrestling, uh, as well as a bunch of other things, but he's going to come on. And we're going to talk about wrestling, but in a very, I promise you, interesting and dramatic and stimulating and intellectually satisfying way. So if you're like thinking wrestling, what the fuck, guys? This show has really jumped the shark. No, hold on. Well, we, we jumped the shark here. like way the hell long time ago. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we did. But we're consistent um, with the shark jumping. And I will say, I'm the poster boy for the person who is not interested at all in wrestling. And I found this to be incredibly interesting and exciting. And even if, even just to hear Lux talk about it, you almost like, you contagiously catch the fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Had you read anything on it before in an intellectual manner? Yeah, I mentioned in the interview that you're going to hear in a second here that I read Chris Hedges' Uh, work on it from Empire of Illusion, which is almost exactly the opposite tone as what Lux is going to talk about here. So if you have that sort of negative, uh, you know, critical view of wrestling, especially in America, this will be a nice dose of of optimism for you. Cool. Cool, cool. All right. So before we get into that, though, we do just want to make a quick announcement. Our Patreon poll from our last Democracy Motherfuckers patron-led sponsored podcast thing uh is a better name for that (laughs) yeah i don't even know what the fuck we call it but the poll is done you the people have spoken the patrons have spoken and the winner of the next patron-led episode is troy we're doing the uh cyril foucault debate oh wait no sorry that's the other one it's the zizek peterson debate (laughs) it's the cambridge capital controversy it's yeah chomsky foucault 2.0 as some people said (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cool all right um we're gonna try to get a guest on for that i think i don't want to say who or what just in case that ends up falling through um but even if we don't we'll have an interesting conversation about that it was plenty to talk about no doubt yeah when was the last time you read a zizek book oh my god um a good eight or nine years ago was it I'm guessing it's been a long time did you read his Hegel book? Is that the last one you read? Yeah, that was the one. Okay. What, remember how, because there was a lot of people saying, oh, he doesn't have a systematized philosophy, but we're waiting for the Hegel book because that's going to be the one. Did it end up turning into that or was it still just as meandering as all of his other stuff? No, probably a good two-fifths of it was just, you know, pasted on from previous books, which is, you know, mm. that's, that's Zizek. So you know what you're getting when you read a Zizek book that's a thousand pages or whatever. Um, parts of it I thought were, that were directly on Hegel were a little bit more in line with his more systematic philosophy from like tearing with the negative and the one he did on Kant and Hegel that I'm, yeah. So uh, that I thought was pretty interesting, but by that point I was kind of already like kicked the ladder down with Zizek, Mm. you know? So uh, 
it was all a little bit just like reminiscing. It's more like a uh, like a nostalgic thing to enjoy music mm. like now. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think most of his stuff that he releases now is pretty weak. I just got the audio book uh, just to listen to his like a thief in broad daylight, which I think is his most recent book, and it's not in any way interesting. If you've read four articles of his, then you basically get everything that you'll find in that book. But he did write a book called The Incontinence of the Void, and it's his book on like a sort of psychoanalytic reading of political economy. And I actually think there's something really valuable in that text. It's actually quite substantial. Um, And that one came out, I think, in 2016, 2017, uh, maybe 2017, 2018. Um, But I thought that was actually really good. But most of his stuff now, it's, you know, like you say, there's nostalgia or it's just almost just pure infotainment. But I'm interested because I, I didn't watch the debate um, and you did because you like live tweeted it, right? I live tweeted it. Yeah, we hosted it. We hosted a little gathering here in Sydney and, you know, like 20 plus people showed up to at it was at like nine in the morning on a Saturday for us time wise. And a bunch of people showed up with coffee and we had coffee and like snacks and stuff like that. And we hung out and in this big room and watched it on a projection screen. It was awesome. Yeah, so I'm looking for, I actually heard that it was more interesting than the naysayers uh, may have said it would be. And there's certainly like a sort of like perverse enjoyment from people being like, I'd rather do anything than watch the Zizek Peterson debate because I'm mm. a serious academic. And that really mm. kind of turned me off, you know? Right. I'd rather do anything. I'm going to watch a show about dragons. <laughs> and I'm also going to tweet about not watching the Zizek Peterson debate many times. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Cool, bro. You're super cool and serious, man. <laughs> uh, so cool. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next coming weeks here. Um, so stay tuned. Look out for that. Obviously, if you're not a patron and you're interested in getting in on this shit moving forward, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn where you can find bonus content, which is bonus episodes, as well as get access to the monthly newsletter. The new newsletter actually should be out by the time this episode is released. So if you're a patron, make sure you check your inbox for that. You should have your month of May newsletter, which has got all kinds of sticky uh, leaves and fucking owl's eggs and whatever else. Uh, what do we call them? Shitty eggs. So, uh, Shitty so eggs. keep an eye out for that. Yeah. yeah. Book recommendations. And also we want to add yeah. Yeah, all that shit. But also, we want to add that if you uh, leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and you ask a question in your review, we'll read it on the air and uh, address it for a minute or two. So go ahead and try to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes if you can. Yes, please. Thank you. All right. Now it's time to get things started. It's time for the first segment of the show. This is the Shitty Minute. It's where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. Troy, you're up. What's got you all in a tizzy so if i'm being honest the thing i'm most angry about this week is absolutely the show about dragons as you mentioned earlier oh is Um, it yeah i mean i i read all the books uh which total to more pages than the bible so (laughs) um i invested a lot of time into the story and i knew that the show was you know basically fan fiction um it's not you know a real adaptation of the actual um, incredibly complex borderline unadaptable storyline uh, spanning an entire world that happens in the books. But still, I, you know, they're, they're doing the ending of since the books have stopped being written at this point. And uh, it was 
underwhelming to the point of offensive. But you know what? No one wants to hear me complain about dragons because everybody on the internet is complaining about dragons. So I decided to go for a more like abstract idea, which is tangentially related to both the whole Game of Thrones phenomenon and also to some things happening in politics right now. And so that thing is this common refrain um, when sort of litigating moral issues that there's a certain uh, sense in which things that happened in the past or that are in a different world than our own um, can be excused simply by virtue of the fact of being in a different world. It's the it was just the time rhetoric um, concerning these issues such that by saying it was just the time, you've basically exculpated somebody from any sort of like blame or reproach or whatever it is for their actions. Um, the obvious uh, situation in the, in the dragon show is, you know, killing a million innocent people for no discernible reason whatsoever. Um, and sometimes people respond to that by being like, you know what? War in this world is just nasty. It's just brutal, right? That's just the way that it is. Sometimes a million people die in five minutes and that's just the way things are. And that mm. is an extremely offensive uh, anti-intellectual stance on the issue. But then let's take it to politics for people who don't want to talk about dragons anymore. Um, this issue first, I think, cropped up recently with the whole Biden thing on uh, um, desegregation of schools and um, busing. You know, the whole idea about Biden wasn't for or sort of opposed uh, desegregation in the 70s, was it? Um, and one of the sort of responses to that is, well, that's just the time. You can't blame someone for the did 40 or 50 or whatever years ago. Uh, and you know what? I don't want to talk about like that specific issue because that's not really interesting to me. The interesting thing is what leads someone to make this claim and what sort of cachet it's supposed to have when they use it. And I think the obvious sense in which uh, this is used is in order to sort of get out of jail free card, right? Uh, I have no other response because this thing is obviously bad. So I'm just going to use uh, like time and circumstance as exploratory factors and hope that that just makes people like relinquish their anger or want for justice or whatever it is, right? Um, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but that seems to be the obvious sort of fountain spring from which this flows. What makes me angry about it, though, is the whole thing, that, that kind of rhetoric it takes agency away from literally everybody involved. It takes agency hmm. away from the perpetrators because it says, well, they're just an agent of their time, period. They're an agent of their social milieu and uh, they're just expressing the content of that social milieu. And so they don't have any agency. They were not able to choose truly um, what was right or good in that moment. But then most importantly, I think it takes agency away from the victims as well because notice the, the social milieu is always of the perpetrator, right? It's never the like sub milieu or whatever of the victim or the victims in this situation, right? When someone says, oh, well, you know, racism was just like, you know, it, it was just um, fluid or it was sort of like exhaustive throughout, you know, the 60s and 70s for all politicians, right? Well, then obviously you're talking about the politicians and not sort of the black families who were uh, subjugated in this circumstance, right? Or the children who were like attacked and beaten and castigated for, um, you know, their families daring to uh, desegregate the schools and to join white school districts, and so that kind of situation always 
takes away agency from everybody and most importantly the victims since they're not included in the time the quote-unquote the time Mm. and i think it's really important to sort of distinguish that which i think is a, a bad intellectual move and borderline bad faith move from situations where there really is an agency involved or there really is agency involved and constitutive of the decision but we can still look back on it and say well given what they knew at the time there's a sort of epistemic gap between them and us so think of like um you know there's a i don't know the details so i don't want to like speak too authoritatively on this but there's a sort of tradition of like uh inuit peoples sometimes in the really really harsh dead of winter um sort of ending the lives of some of their children because mm-hmm. they're not likely to make it through um, the winter or whatever, right? It's like a utilitarian approach. Or the you know c- uh, civilizations that practice like human sacrifice to gods um, in ancient uh, civilizations. Like you can honestly say they probably thought long and hard about what they were doing. They just either had a different degree of knowledge than we did or were in circumstances that are qualitatively very different than our own such that we, we don't know what we would do in those situations or what would be right in those situations, like with Inuit peoples. So those are situations where I think it's really important to bring up this issue of um, what how the time was different than our own and that th- those differences actually do end up uh, producing like a moral difference compared to mm. situations where you're just saying it was a different time because that means that the moral logic would have been different. And I, I don't I don't buy that unless you can sort of describe why it would be different. But you never get an answer mm. to that, I don't think. Mm. Did you, like, I've, dude, I've, the Game of Thrones thing, like, I literally know nothing about it. <laughs> so uh, I, I fell asleep in the first episode, and then I just never picked it up again. And so I know everybody online is freaking out. So my relationship to all of the controversy, the commentary, everything, is as one who just sees the blowback. And I have no idea what it's attached to in any really substantive sense. I mean, I'm sure I can kind of surmise it just from all the years of seeing people spoil the show for me. But like, I I am like so disattached from all of this stuff that for me, it's just kind of funny. Oh, I can definitely see that, right? People are so intense about this thing that just has no purchase on your reality whatsoever. I'm over a million people. I'm just going to speak about it from just like a from a creator's perspective, but over a million people signed a petition to have the final show remade. Now, this might be a collective performative release of frustration that doesn't actually have any substantive it roots. Is. It's 100% fine. <laughs> sure. But it's still ridiculous there, though. <laughs> there is something, you know how everyone is like like you get the the older generations that are like, "Ah, oh, the younger generation, you're so entitled." And the younger generation is like, "We're not entitled." And then you sign a million of y'all motherfuckers a petition to have a show remade because it didn't do the thing that you expected it to do because it didn't fulfill your own well, fantastic desires. Well, that's not fair. Desires. That's not fair. That's entitlement, that's fair. bro. That's not fair, dude. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about this at length, but there, I'm sure there's some people who are upset because it didn't sort of fulfill their expectations or the thing they wanted to happen. But the vast majority of people who like read the books and stuff and who care about the story wanted the same sort of logic to apply to the this last season as applied to the earlier seasons, which is an actual logic as opposed to like memification. And but that's, the, but the that's logic of the memification won. But you're not the creator. You're not the artist. Well, neither are they. 
but that's that's just no, a but they are. situation. They well, are the the producers and 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 screenwriters. They have they're retracing a pre-existent product, but they're creating something novel about it. Yeah, it, it is using uh, an existing IP, but it's an independent entity, right? Like there's there's some blurring lines, but I just get frustrated when audiences like speak to artists and they get mad at them because it didn't do what they wanted it to do. Like all the job of the artist and the media creator is, is to just simply give you the thing that you're expecting. Like that's it. But literally no one's saying that. I think that's no one's saying what you don't think so. No, not, I mean, there's probably some people who are like, who are just show fans who are upset about, you know, their favorite character being a bad person. But I mean, the vast majority of people I think that actually like read the books and care about the story they were mad at the fact that there was no internal logic to the end. It, it breaks apart upon even the most simple uh, analysis. Whereas the the show built itself, and the, as the books did, on having an incredibly complex logic, unlike any other sort of drama could have. Um, and it betrayed that internal vision. It's the internal consistency that I think people care about. And when that's lost, it just becomes kind of you know a comedy of errors. That's what people were upset about mostly. I think that's the smart take. I don't know. I maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm overinflating two dumb tweets that I saw or something like that. But I just no, I'm I, very sen- I'm very sensitive to uh, YouTube comment logic <laughs> right yeah, now. No, I agree with you that that that's <laughs> pervasive in a lot of media, and I have no doubt that there's a large degree of people who are just mad because the thing they wanted to happen didn't happen. Um, but yeah. that's. That's not, I think, the majority of people who actually give a shit. And you can even just read like the like legitimate reviews of this final season from re- respected critics, not fans. And it's been pretty much the same. This doesn't make sense. Uh, this has been a huge letdown. This is not just a fan thing. Even the critics have been uh, pretty negative in their response to the, the end here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just more thinking about that million petition thing like i don't imagine that many of the critics would have signed a petition to remake the final season no of course not they did. so but that's what it, i'm we're talking about it's in the same spirit as the kind of highbrow criticism i think although it's you know mm. expressed in this lowbrow uh fan kind of way but what do you think about the it was just in time rhetoric what do you mean the like the the the, the ending of the show or no, no, the, the common refrain of uh, a bad thing happens in the past um, or some person who we want to celebrate did some terrible thing and we excuse it by saying it was just the time. Like that's a kind of moral explication. Yeah, I don't know. I hadn't that doesn't bother that. you? No. Uh, did you read? I'm trying to think. Did you read Zizek? Actually, Zizek wrote um, a commentary on this in The Independent, I think. Did you read that one? On what? On the ending of The Game of Thrones. Oh, no, I haven't even heard of that. Yeah, I didn't read it, but a, a lot of people were tweeting about it and saying, yeah, this is really interesting. Because obviously he's you know a psychoanalyst, so he's going to get into some of the uh, underlying unconscious structural things. But no, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really think too much about that, to be honest. I don't know. With the Biden yeah. thing, that didn't bother you? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, you constantly do hear that, right? It was... um. Oh God! Yeah, I mean, you heard about it so much just within the last election, when when Trump was kind of doing his locker room talk, and there was a big kind of pushed to the front of public consciousness, like, well, is it acceptable that men were 
in in the workplace, you know, in like the Mad Men kind of set that they were sexualizing their secretaries and talking about them explicitly um, in, in sexual senses and, you know, making them wear heels so that they could, you know, be sex objects. And is that just boys being boys in the 1950s? And that's just something we, we, we forget. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I really do think this is a, a really ripe area for thought. I mean, kind of the way you explained it, explained it when you were talking about earlier. It's not like you just simply absolve people of uh, sacrificing humans. Um, but then at the same sense, it's then explaining, okay, well, what is it that we might find to be deficient about that as an ethical or social practice? But then at the same, at the same time, we can't just simply interpret it from the lens of our current hermeneutical framework. There's something much more valuable, and I don't mean this as just like some sort of bland, superficial justification, but there's something much more valuable to uh, the, the, the notion of human sacrifice to a pre-industrial or an ancient society than something that we can even fathom to comprehend or even apprehend right now, which is why it takes a lot of work, scholarly work, and a lot of reflection and a lot of thought and a lot of listening to accounts to try to understand, okay, what is it that is the internal logic of that different paradigm and in what ways are we able to either understand or is there an incommensurability from our own temporal historical paradigmatic position in being able to actually address or access what's going on there i just think it's a really for me from an analytical perspective i think it's more interesting than i'm able to make a value judgment on it no i 100 percent agree i think that the ultimate response should be um this should be a sort of fuel to thought right? It shouldn't be about, well, how do we figure out how to blame this person or not blame this person? That's right. that's such a superficial way of looking at um, how to analyze the moral logic of a situation. Instead, it should be, let's try to understand what that person thought and then you know try to apply it to our own situation, right? How does that same sort of logic apply to us? And I think in the case of human sacrifice to gods, right? The idea is given you know the fact that you have this intense belief in uh, a multitude of gods who govern history and govern uh, the fates of of your civilization. Um, you might think, well, we have to sacrifice some people to uh, you know ensure the greater good or whatever. That's not super different in terms of a moral logic to the belief that you know what um, there's a certain social and economic system which we have and it's necessary because it's the only one that works. And some people are going to be sacrificed um, at the altar for that through no fault of their own because mm -hmm. of. Uh, uh, you know, circumstance like their birth or the you know economic standing of their parents or uh, geographically where they live or whatever, right? That's a necessary sacrifice for this greater good. Never really understanding that you know the whole situation is much more contingent than we're willing to admit and open to change. That's a mm. pretty similar logic at play. You know, one's a little bit more active and one's more passive, certainly. Um, but ultimately, we can see that same sort of thinking apply in both situations. I think it's super important to understand that even ancient peoples were human beings and they thought about what they did and they had reasons for why they did what they did. And the important yeah. thing is to know that, that they weren't automatons just as much as we're not automatons. And so and just like we have thousands of years of intellectual development, so too did they. So it wasn't just some sort of like out of nowhere ad hoc decision like, oh, hey, let's just start sacrificing people to appease the gods so that their blood will fill into the earth and bountifully like grow our crops. No. There's thousands of years of various traditions that have culminated in those practices in that moment. And so there's an entire deep history that you need to understand from their perspective as well. So it isn't just simply 
the snapshot of the activity in that time period against the snapshot of our activity in our time period. It's also connecting what Bergson and Deleuze call the pure past, the sort of infinite depth of the past that impinges on and that is contracted in its expression within any given historical paradigm. We need to afford the same um, process to the people at that time as well, precisely for what you're saying, because they're fucking humans too, you know? Yeah, and it's only when you do that that you can do the sort of analysis that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to have the content to do the analysis. And the whole, it was just the time rhetoric is meant to sort of just throw the analysis uh, bit in the trash. And that means you can never, ever use that to better understand yourself and your own situation. It, it seems like, and I don't know if I am if I'm going to overstate my case here, but it seems like there's, in the, in the contemporary moment in particular, maybe this is a human tendency, maybe this is something that I'm just more sensitive to, but it, it feels like people need to make quick or quicker immediate value judgments about everything. Like, you already have to have a preformed idea. Maybe this even ties into what we were talking about with Lux, which you'll kind of hear in a couple minutes for the, the listeners here about this, like, kayfabed identity that we're all managing. But it has to be this, it's a pre-constituted domain or field of what we might call assets, characteristics, traits, beliefs, um, activities in which you participate, sports teams that you follow, political parties with which you affiliate yourself, whatever, that those make up your portfolio. And, and your then, values do too, right? That's the idea. It, and your value system. Yeah, exactly. And all of that is in there. And then things issue from that pre-constituted portfolio. And we'll call that your identity. And it just seems that the rate of demand at which the internet age, maybe even like financialized capital, the assetized regime uh, dictates is so intense that you have to make a judgment based on the assets that you have in your portfolio, so to speak, metaphorically. You have to make an immediate um, assessment as to what you invest in and what you disinvest in, right? It's like you've got your investment, you've got your 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 assets, um, you, you have your, uh, your equity position in the market and you have to make these immediate decisions like high-frequency trading almost. And so it's It's like a difficult. value algorithm, right? You have that's a value it, algorithm and you have to just follow through on it. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I don't know if this is like just a particularly potent thing in 2019 or if this is something that's always existed, like I, I, I still have a romanticism about a slower time where time actually was allowed to unfold and it didn't, it wasn't dictated by necessarily the clocks and the digital things and the alarms that are all around us all the time. Um, so I believe that time maybe used to exist, maybe it doesn't exist now, I don't know. Um, but, but regardless, the experience of time seems to be completely compressed. And we have to make value judgments about everything. But maybe we don't need to make value judgments about things so quickly. And I know that that's not palatable for people who are trying to make political gains. But maybe politics and value judgments aren't as commensurable. They aren't as synonymous as we are want to suppose. But I think right now, maybe that's one of the big problems with the commentariat is that value judgment equates politics. And I don't think that that's the case necessarily. Yeah, this is why books are better than tweets. Because they take <laughs> a long damn time. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. Well, did you did you watch the end of Game of Thrones or did you just kind of like page like were you into it or no? Of course I did. I wasn't going to miss you did, that. Yeah. Like episode by episode, like were you 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 guys were like you were into it like okay, this is it. This is the last episode. Get out the popcorn. Yeah, I mean, I I was it was like watching a tragedy at that point. Um <laughs> oh. yeah, I was I, I was still there. Are you going to read the books that he writes now after? Oh, that that's the best part of it, dude. Is the ending was was so bad that I think it may actually sort of fuel George Martin to finish the books now because it's not the case that someone else finishes his story and he just has to sort of perfunctorily go through the motions and, and do it himself. Now he gets to write the good one, the good version. That's the challenge uh, that fans will enjoy and like and appreciate. So he now has this new motivation, I think, hopefully. That's what I'm guessing. Mm. You know, it's interesting. So I, this is the last thing I'll say on this. I know we've, we've been talking about this for a long, long time. But um, so a friend of mine quoted george martin and martin's criticism of tolkien and tied this into a lot of the kind of frustration with the ending of game of thrones and uh he's the the quote is something along the lines of tolkien was wrong precisely because he believed that you could have a benevolent king that could sit on the throne and that's where it ends and of course you know tolkien is notoriously like christendom catholic type right yeah but it's like he's wrong because sure you get Aragorn on the throne, but what was his tax proposal? Yeah. Right? What was his tax regime like? Um, what about the orcs? They aren't gone. There's still going to be conflict. They're um, definitely in concentration camps, for sure. Right, exactly. So <laughs> what – This great. You have this benevolent king, but there's still going to be problems. We don't know what it means to just simply have like this great man sit on a throne who maybe has moral fiber and some sort of um, really strong and, and maybe even – imitatable kind of ethical character about him in a lot of ways but he's wrong because he kind of just presumes that you can have that whereas game of thrones is precisely contesting that but the but the series it seems that a lot of people are frustrated because they want the tolkien ending they want like the justified ruler to be on the throne at the end so that you can have that moment where you're like yes like Aragorn 2.0 kind of thing. No, I think it's actually the opposite. I mean, I don't want to talk about this too much more, but um, the ending actually wrapped it up really nicely to the point where it was completely unbelievable given the fact that the logic of the series is that nothing is ever clean and easy and politics always continues, is always contestable. But that's why people got upset with it a lot of times. I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so? I don't think anybody watched this show and thought, yeah, this is a story that's going to end with... Jon Snow on the throne ruling everyone's good because he's a good man literally Mm. nobody is saying that Um, yeah I think it's absolutely about the fact that the complex logic which governed the series for the first four seasons uh, just fell apart and they didn't follow through on on that Mm. logic at all interesting well maybe one of these days I'll catch up on it but I feel like I'd rather actually just read the books and I just want to wait for Martin to do his thing yeah so maybe by 2030 (laughs) cool All right, sick. So now we're going to get into our main segment. As I said at the outset, we've got a guest on today, and we're going to talk about something that might seem 
a little bit odd for a philosophy slash whatever else this is podcast, for a theory <laughs> podcast. But we're going to convince you by the end of why wrestling, the world of professional, not amateur wrestling like the Greco-Roman with the history back to the Greeks, even though I guess we could tie it into that, but why professional wrestling, the spectacle of wrestling is really quite deep. Uh, we got our guest on. It's Michael Luxembourg. He goes by Lux. He is the... or. Hey, 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 um, he's a director writer for Wisecrack. That's how I actually met the guy because um, we have like writer chat rooms and calls and stuff like that. So that's how I uh, got in contact with Lux. Um, he's also the promo and video team lead for Party what is, Party World Wrestling, not wrestling, wrestling. Yeah, PWR, Party World Wrestling. Rasslin. And then uh, he's a host of Game Boys podcast. He also goes on a lot of the Wisecrack podcasts. And you're going to have to explain this one to me. You prank call alt-right radio shows for not even a show. So what What do you mean? Like yeah. you literally just call sure. radio shows. And, yeah. So um, so there's a comedian in Canada named Chris James who started the show and is still in charge of it. Um, and I'm not as involved as I once was. So I still, I still pop on every once in a while. But basically what we do is we have a Discord thread. And we look at the schedule of various alt-right radio shows and sort of write jokes and write calls and just all coordinate calling in so that we can get these weird sort of pranks on the air. Um, and what makes it particularly good is very rarely are our pranks particularly political. It's just that these people are so easily riled by anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we create running jokes that are total, total fucking nonsense. Um, one of my favorites in particular is that we uh, call this guy J.J. McCartney and we'll just compliment his shirt. Um, and just talk about his shirt instead of whatever, like weird, like, uh, weird women can't have abortions because of volcanoes or something bullshit he's talking about. <laughs> um, and then he gets furious. Like he'll scream at us when we're just like, call and be like, <laughs> we'll be like, Hey, nice shirt, JJ. And he'll freak the fuck out. And it is very funny. Does he know it's you guys when he hears your voice? He knows Chris. He can pick up Chris in, in one shot. Um, not everyone else for sure but we and we rotate often enough that like few of the people really know who who each individual person is see i uh, think some people would say that this uh you know is always this really productive i think this this is praxis man you're taking up the air lot you're taking up the airway time so that other assholes can't get on there and spew their racist shit yeah i think it's I, wonderful and i think there's 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 that which is a tangible impact the other tangible impact is that maybe it and it's not a lot obviously but like they'll be doing their live streams and then they act like a huge baby because someone compliments their shirts and they'll like lose viewers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like ideological guerrilla warfare. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the, the whole, sort of the whole thing. And it has a very, and everyone involved is like politically active people. Like it's not just a bunch of like, I don't know, stonery idiots. I mean, it is, but they're also <laughs> like all fairly politically active within their various frames. Um, and their show has a pretty good political awareness. Um, in fact, one of my favorite moments on the show ever was, Chris called someone, I forget who, and they were like, oh, because things are so great in Canada. And he was like, well, no. And then just went on this big rant about like the failures of Canadian governance. And it's like this very good, like sort of internationalist practice and like sort of awareness of the world. So it's not just like you're dumb, but it's like we actually have a sort of political goal and a political angle and viewpoint, mm. even if it's all sort of hidden behind like jokes about shirts and swords and like farting and stuff. <laughs> So uh, tell us about Party World Wrestling. I watched some of these videos, and from what from what I gather, it's a local because you're in Austin, yes. and so it's it's a local, uh, it's like a regional, like party slash wrestling promotion. 
Yes. Right? Is, that is pretty much exactly right. I mean, okay. Okay. So, so like you guys have parties at these wrestling events. Yes. It is. It takes place in a brewery um, <laughs> with, uh, with in undisclosed, but suffice it to say substantial. Well, I shouldn't say this. It was an undisclosed large number of people. Um, I'd okay. be careful about uh, fire code stuff. Um, That's where there are oc- occupancy limits and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but a large number of people. But it's under, it's whatever the limit is, it's under that. It's exactly one you... less than that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Always, at all times. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, and so it's this, it's the show, it's a brewery, and it's gone from, I got involved the last show at the second venue that we were at, which was called Midway Fieldhouse, which was like a sort of small bar. It started in a backyard. Um, and just sort of grew in size and popularity until now we have this huge show every three months. Um, and we just sometimes take it on the road to places and we do local events and stuff like that. Um, what makes the show interesting conceptually is that it has like a pretty defined theology to it. Hmm. Um, in the sense that the whole show is premised, uh, people kind of forget this about the show, but, uh, where it's a snake cult, it's a cult that worships a giant snake God. Um, (laughs) And the way that it views the world is very almost like it's not quite spinoza e, but it's like close enough that it's not an unreasonable comparison um, in the sense that it says that everything that exists in the world is violence. Um, and violence can be subdivided into two types, uh, work violence and party violence. Work violence mm-hmm. is things like uh, social systems of capital or gender or race or um, any sort of sort of oppressive social system or just like the ways in which social life steals your time away from you. That's all work violence. Right. And then everything else that you do is party violence. Any kind of like expression away from that, any sort of like Delusian line of flight, if you will, is, is party violence. Um, and so the show is sort of premised around that, right? That it's these people wrestling and we're doing, and as a group, as a cult of, of however many hundreds, thousands of people, we're doing party violence together as like a big celebration for our weird worm God and also as a big like middle finger to work violence as like an institutional thing that exists. Um, we did a show in our version of hell called the bone realm. I mean, it was at the brewery, but we decorated it to look like the bone realm. Obviously it didn't actually take place in a hell world. Um, <laughs> but we did that. And the whole thing was that if we don't succeed in like getting the world free of the necro realm of, of the bone realm, then like we'll all be doomed to work violence forever. And work violence in that sense was a, a video someone made. Uh, I think my friend Madeline made it because she's a fucking genius of sort of an introductory Facebook video, like how to work at Facebook, but for working in the bone realm. And it was all about, you know, um, you know, you're a skeleton who sits at your desk and just types all day and you have zero breaks and nothing good ever happens. And all you do is type and when your bones fall off, they just give you new bones. <laughs> um, and that's your life in, in sort of the party of the work violence sort of hell world. <laughs> Um, I love it. Is that so? Then now it makes the videos have so much more context. The dude that's in the suit that's kind of talking in a lot of the videos, he is supposed to represent like the supreme leader of work violence in a lot uh, of ways. Yeah. Oh, Big Daddy Bolero, the kind of cowboy looking dude. <laughs> yeah. Big Daddy Bolero. Yeah. Well, he represents a very Austin specific form of work violence, which is sort of obviously gentrification, right? Like, okay. Um, that's something that we reckon with, like as a group, just as like the people who make the show, a lot of them are, are leftists. Um, I think that's probably pretty clear from watching the videos and, and the show and knowing me. Um, but now beyond that, they, we all are like, you know, not super well earning artist types or like weirdos. And so gentrification has had like a not insubstantial effect on the lives of our lives and lives of people around us in such a way that we were like, well, this has to be part of the show. Um, 
And what in, in Austin, there is literally nothing that represents gentrification more than like a, a Dallas guy who an oil guy from Dallas. Right. Like that's mm. the most gentrification thing there is. Those guys always show up and they're like, oh, I see this barbecue place is run by a black family. What if I buy it and turn it into eight gas stations or whatever? Mm. Um, like those guys are, are pervasive. Um, and so Big Daddy Bolero, Sean, um, I guess sorry to break kayfabe everyone, but uh, um, but but Sean really does an incredible job of like imbuing that guy with a sort of it helps that Sean's like a hot dad, I guess. Uh, but he has like this like sexy like devil appeal in the sense of like he's an attractive guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and he's like witty and he speaks in rhymes and shit, but he's like fundamentally evil. Mm. Um, and so he's like, yeah, an manifestation of a really specific kind of work violence. Yeah, real quick. So before we started, uh, before when you, when you and I were setting this up, I, I mentioned to Troy the word kayfabe. And Troy was like, what's kayfabe? And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, because we made a video on it for yes. Wisecrack. And so I figure, can you explain kayfabe? Because you just said, sorry to break kayfabe for everybody sure. a minute ago. What yes. is kayfabe? Because this, this is integral to the world of wrestling. Oh, absolutely. So, so in fact, it, it goes back to, to like the very origins of wrestling as we understand it, right? So wrestling as we understand it was originally um, a carnival con, right? It was, they'd have like a big strong man and like a weird ones, you know, like a, a carnival strong man. And he'd wrestle people in the crowd for a dollar. But in order to make sure that the people in the crowd didn't think that this was an impossible challenge, they'd have a, a plant in the crowd who'd come out and who'd win, right? And so everyone in the crowd would be like, oh, he's beatable or whatever. Mm. Um, it would be like this big moment. And kayfabe is just carny talk for be fake, right? Kayfabe is the, like, layer of performance. Um, so when I refer to, to Big Daddy Valero as Sean, I'm breaking kayfabe because within the story, within the world of the show, he's Big Daddy Valero. Um. Mm when he and I are hanging out and grabbing drinks, he's my friend, Sean. Mm -hmm. Um, but the kayfabe is like, is that performative layer? Right. And people have taken that idea insanely far. Um, there were wrestlers in the eighties who just never broke kayfabe ever. Um, even like, like from if they were, unless they were like in their house alone, they were in character. Um, I think Macho Man Randy Savage just famously was like that for a long time. Other dudes are like that. So that, that's how it sort of used to be. Wrestling now is a lot more blurry on those questions. I feel like Andrew Dice Clay, his character was kayfabe, and then he just became the Dice Man Yes, over the years. Yeah, totally. Well, like we said in the video for Wisecrack, kayfabe has sort of become a pervasive thing, especially in the world of social media where you have like a, an outward-facing brand you have to like perpetuate in a certain type of way. Um. Mm. And kayfabe is a really good example of just how that works in the sense of like, you just stay this character. You make sure no one sees like the thing beneath the mask because the mask is what they want. And any revelation of the thing beneath it cheapens the thing on top. Wouldn't 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 performative performativity theorists say that kind of people always were enacting or performing a role that it's. That, yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we might say there's a difference now, but there's always a sense that kayfabe is part of the human existence. We're defining ourselves based on how other people see us or how we want other people to see us or something along those lines. Oh, totally. And I mean, the, the big difference now and what, you know, like almost everything else comes back to like an economic question. Like suddenly the stakes of that performance aren't just how will my friends feel if they realize I don't actually mm. like this music or whatever. It's like, what about my followers? What about my sponsors who pay me to talk about flat tummy tea on Instagram, blah, 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 blah. Like there's a, an actual like economic, economic and class element to that perpetuation. I mean, for instance, like um, if you look at even like leftist podcasts, like you look at something like, uh, I don't know, uh, Chapo Trav House, like 
those guys are kind of that way all the time, but they're definitely not actually that way a hundred percent of the time, the way they present themselves as right. Mm. Of course not. Like, and so, but they have to be as far as public facing goes because they make a hundred thousand dollars a month or whatever on their Patreon. Um, yeah. So there's suddenly economic stakes to kayfabe in a way that wasn't always true. Even when like Butler was writing about it or something. It's interesting. It's kind of like a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge language amongst the different participants when it comes to how to keep kayfabe and to encourage each other, uh, like a secret knowledge that one is keeping kayfabe the whole time. Yeah. Within wrestling, there definitely is. Um, like you'll see it a lot. I get the shit for this. It shows a lot because I'm not a wrestler. I'm just directing the camera and, and organizing video and stuff. Um, so like, for instance, uh, uh, Recently, this happened where uh, my friend Chris had a match. Chris is the commissioner and sort of a big dog in charge. And he also is a Luigi Primo, um, everyone's favorite pizza chef. Sorry, the world's greatest pizza chef um, and the best wrestler. Um, And he had a match. And after the match, he came to the lobby and I was in the lobby to walk outside of a cigarette. And I was like, Chris, great work. And he was like, I don't know this man. I'm a Luigi Primo. I'm a bit of best wrestler. (laughs) Um and so there is sort of this like, yeah, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, yeah, everyone knows that there's a bit going on here. Like, obviously, this isn't who I actually am, especially because there are videos of both Chris as regular Chris and Chris as Luigi Primo that will come out within like a week of each other. But we it still pay. It doesn't you know pay literally, but it's it's part of the fun. Part of the performance is not breaking that rule. Like, well, you're at the venue. Everyone just is who they say they are. Um, and I think that honestly extends to the audience, too, to a certain extent. Like we put a big value on like. Re- like every show basically starts with Tim Faust, uh, the MC, Timmy Quivers, um, by his book, Healthcare Justice Now. It's coming out in October or August, rather. Um, uh, he starts every show basically with a spiel about, uh, you know, uh, anyone's allowed here. It doesn't matter if you're man, woman, friend beyond the binary, black, white, whatever, as long as you're not a fucking dweeb. What does it mean to be a fucking dweeb? It means anyone who thinks that those other people shouldn't be here. <laughs> right. Like that's like a huge part of the show. And it's like you can be whoever you want to be in that space. And the same like the same way that a wrestler, the same way that my friend Jeremy can be pretend to be a, a man made out of pizza or a monster made out of pizza. You can be whoever you want to be in that space, too. Um, I think it's mm. a big part of both of our show. I think it's also an implicit part of also regular like any other wrestling show, like even WWE. Right. Like who you cheer for, whoever says something about you and you're allowed to express that that viewpoint in that setting because that's the rules of the game. That's why it's fun. Hmm. It's so interesting. We um we had a scholar here in Sydney for about a, a month visit, residency, I guess you could call it. His name is Michel Fair, and he's a Belgian philosopher, and his most recent book is called Rated Agency. And in it, he makes the argument, and he gave a series of seminars here, he's talking about his book and then his next project that's kind of, actually it's like a prequel to his book, but it's the, the next one that he's going to put out. And it's about how what you get under the contemporary almost like post neoliberal moment is that you didn't get the re- the realization of what the neoliberal reformers wanted which is that everybody would become entrepreneurs of the self sort of cultivating their human capital but he says instead what you get is a sea of people who are portfolio managers who are managing their assets their ratings and you see that through people managing their uber ratings um, but also their facebook friends and their twitter followers and their instagram clicks and likes and you are constantly defining yourself by this but that also translates into the business and economic world explicitly insofar as you have your linkedin portfolio 
And you have to make sure that your WeWork portfolio and that your Facebook portfolio and that all of these things are all linked together so that you are cultivating your assets in such a way to present your, let's say, your kayfabe personality to make yourself enticing for investors. And those investors are other friends, other people, as well as uh, business sponsors, as well as potential employers that would that would hire you. But similarly, the corporations operate under this model as well. The corporations aren't concerned about the end goal being profitability, but really profitability and uh, and all of these other you know acquisition of capital and capital investment are actually means to get to the ultimate end, which is the maintenance of your credit rating, which is measured by stock price basically, right? And if your stock price is good and your company has a large market capitalization and you are valued highly, then that means that you're going to court more investment. And so really everything, even your profitability numbers or your lack of profitability numbers in the case of like Amazon or Uber, that is really all secondary only insofar as you can maintain your ability to court investment. And so even if you do announce some sort of like, oh, we're going to be paying out dividends, the reason that they announce it that way is so that other investors will flood in to buy the stock prices so that they can become shareholders to receive dividends. So again, the whole point is that it's just constantly about maintaining your rating in the public so that you can court investment. And this notion of kayfabe to me sounds to be something that is really particularly potent in, let's say, a postmodern world where you have like this detachment maybe from the sort of prevalence of finance capital. And this is actually an argument that Frederick Jameson makes in uh, an essay called The End of Temporality, how it's kind of changed our notion of the temporal experience, that finance capital has like detached us, if you will, from the subject-object relation or whatever before. And so now you just get this world of, we might call it the world of excess or the world of assets or the world of kayfabe. And um, it's really fucking interesting to hear you talk about this because it's kind of, it's all making these connections in my mind at the explicit socioeconomic realm. And it seems that there's a lot of interesting stuff to glean from this beyond just, hey, we're playing roles in the typical sense that I think a lot of people like to think about. Well, here, let me let me draw another connection to take us to sort of another part of wrestling um, away from kayfabe more towards the the actual thing. Um, when you when you talk about this idea that, like, all you're trying to do is maintain the stock, this credit report, i.e. their stock portfolio, i.e. investors continuing to put things in. That's a big part of what modern professional WWE wrestling is now. Um, the big complaint everyone has in the entire fucking world about WWE is twofold. One, the shows are way too long. I guess it's threefold. One, the shows are way too long. Two, there's way too fucking many of them. Three, they shouldn't keep doing deals with the Prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, mm. Those are the three big WWE problems people have. There are a lot of other ones, but those are the three big ones, right? This, These are all to satisfy investors, right? Because in modern advertising, what you need to in modern sort of investment stuff, you need to have metrics. The easiest metric for WWE to track is how many people watch their shit for how long. So mm. it's in their best interest to make WrestleMania seven fucking hours so they can be like, look, these people watched six hours of wrestling this one day or whatever. Because um, I say I say six, not seven, because no one I've ever met watches the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, they, you know, they. They make that deal. And then the same with having pay-per-views every month so that they continue to say they have eyeballs. The same with the Saudi Arabia deal is to say to investors, look, we have this guaranteed influx of a several hundred million dollars to go deal with the Prince of Saudi Arabia. Like it's all hinged a lot of it on that, which and in doing so, this is why WWE sucks. And this will tie into a lot of the stuff that I sent you to, to that we were talking about talking about. In doing so, WWE has made the craft of wrestling, which I think is one of the coolest art forms that exists, um, 
second to the finances of wrestling in explicit terms. Uh, and by doing so, I've made it so their show never has like a real sense of urgency or dramatic excellence. Like we, I sent y'all an article uh, by JJ McGee from Spectacle of Excess that talks about the idea of Kairos in wrestling, right? The Greek mm-hmm. concept of Kairos, the uh, the perfect moment to do the thing. Um, the moment of perfection, uh, you know, the, the moment you let loose an arrow and hit a moving target or whatever, the perfect mm-hmm. timing. Um, that is the biggest part of wrestling booking by far is knowing the story you're telling and knowing the exact moment, the exact circumstances to pull the trigger on the thing the audience wants. Um, PWR, we struggle with that. We've had times where it's been perfect. <laughs> We've had times where it's been less than perfect. We've had times where Donald Trump won the election. We had to rewrite the end of a show real quick because um, <laughs> the show after the election was going to end on an extremely sad note. And we were like, cannot do that to our audience. <laughs> um, but there are many variables. But the thing is that the WWE's great failure is that by secondarizing this to profit, they don't get those moments. Really? They don't get the sort of perfect organic buildup to the audience is going crazy. They want this one thing to happen. You pick the perfect foil, you pick the perfect timing, and in one three count, the audience explodes with joy and energy in this way that is so fucking awesome. You can't do that if your show is dictated by all these different external outcomes because you need to focus on the story that you're telling. Um, hmm. And that's why we're fun of PWR being like the sort of crowdfunded group, like collectively, mostly somewhat collectively owned thing is that we never have to worry about that other bigger shit. Uh, we only have to tell our story, uh, you know, so I mean, the most recent example of this going well, actually, fuck the most recent one to do the best one, which is the Donald Trump thing. So we did a show. And I think 2017 called Dark War Two. It was the sequel to Dark War One. <laughs> this, I guess, is maybe obvious. <laughs> uh, Dark War One was a battle for the future of humanity in a timeline where a robot from an alternate timeline stole the party weight championship and used it to create a robo society or something like that. It was confusing. Um, Dark War two is the version of that that happens organically in our timeline. And the end of the show prior was the one right before, right after Trump was elected. And that show ended with the bad guys showing up being evil robots, like killing Timmy quivers, stealing the belt, doing all sorts of bad things. And we're getting end it like that. But instead, because of the Trump thing, we had one, we had the wrestlers in the ring, like cut a promo, which is like when the wrestlers talk in the ring about like, well, the, what was the line? It was, uh, those who are strong must protect those who are weak and those who can fight must protect those who can't. And those who can suplex must suplex for those who can't suplex for themselves. <laughs> um, and it was like this moment that felt really transcendent because everyone knew what we were talking about. Right. <laughs> Like no one, no one, I mean, everyone knew like also dark war, but like everyone really knew like actually what we meant was, you know, this election Mm. and, and life in a world where suddenly certain groups are emboldened to do some bullshit that maybe they probably shouldn't do. Um, and that's like the power of wrestling, right? Like that was just perfect timing in that moment for that story to hit in a way that it couldn't possibly otherwise. Like that's Kairos in wrestling is. Sometimes you can build it. Sometimes it just happens because of external circumstances. But what wrestling is great at in a way that no other art form is, to my mind, is that in the moment you see that sort of emerge around you. Because a wrestling moment can't be a wrestling moment without the wrestlers doing a great job, the production staff doing a great job, and most significantly, the fans also have to be involved. 
right? Mm. A perfect wrestling moment with no one around doesn't fucking matter. Um, mm. You need the audience reaction to to give it the sort of juice that makes it great. Um, like Bart says, and the other thing I sent you guys, uh, it's it's basically just Greek theater, right? Like it it does go back to the Greeks. It's just that instead of we're instead of us doing Greek wrestling, we're doing Greek theater and calling it wrestling. You mentioned that the the fans play an integral integral role in in how the uh, Kairos is achieved, right? Something you said a second yeah. ago. Oh, yeah. Something you said a second ago, Lux, or a few minutes ago, was that um, it's not only the wrestlers themselves that are kind of putting on these identities and and using them to you know execute the storyline, but the fans themselves do that as well. Like they're not the same person when they're in in the dome watching. Um, the match as they are when they're at home right and that's always something that's something that really struck me as i think i didn't really think about or notice um and this sort of spectacle because you know i think i read a a book by chris hedges he's a cultural critic um who's really kind of dour and 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 negative he wrote a book called empire is crank yeah, absolutely. He wrote a book called Empire of Illusion where he talked really negatively about the world of wrestling as kind of being like the ultimate expression of um, basically all the worst things about poor white rural America. Um, and that seems to be like a major thing that he missed was that the fans themselves are not sort of like expressing the worst parts of their nature when they're watching a match that they wouldn't be able to express outside because it's considered to be lowbrow or inappropriate, but they're actually like trying on a new identity and, and like playing a role um, by uh, booing the heel or cheering for the underdog or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, and so totally. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause that, that, that totally kind of upsets the, the sort of negative social critique of wrestling as just being, the spectacle for people who are sort of not necessarily smart enough to like read books or go to the theater or watch art films or whatever. No, well, I think, I mean, this is, this is the big takeaway from the Bart piece, right? I mean, at least for me is that wrestling. So look, he describes it so beautifully, right? Like um, a light cast, so str- or a, a light shining so bright that it casts no shadows. Um, It's mm. this wrestling space is one where, Good and bad are rarely ambiguous. It is always very clear who's good, who's bad, and why. The terms of that are kind of set by the show. For instance, a guy who might be a character who might be a heel in one promotion is a face in another promotion because the style of wrestling or the type of fans or the whatever is different. But it's clear from the get-go who's what, right? Both based on the fan reaction, how they perform. And that sort of clarity, I think, rather than being sort of oversimplifying is cathartic in a way that is I, I personally don't find anywhere else in, in art. Um, because like, look, it, to be totally frank, like the world's fucked up and confusing, um, in almost every circumstance, uh, social interactions are nightmarish. Uh, politics is truly a fucking hell world. Uh, you can't make a show about dragons though. Getting everyone to just yell on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's no, there's, there's no just like, here's a, here's B they're fighting and you're happy. Right. That's not really the way the world works, but wrestling does that. Um, and contrary to hedges who I, I think I've actually read the hedges piece that you're talking about, who, who seems convinced that like, this is sort of a way of expressing our shittiest behavior and a way of simplifying the world to like down to like simple shitty viewpoints. I think that it's embracing a viewpoint that is necessary. I think that, 
I think moral relativism is an extremely important tool and is generally kind of a good thing. I do think it's also a paralyzing thing. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of people who refuse to make moral claims that are to my mind obvious because of, you know, well-founded issues with the idea of moral claims or whatever, but like wrestling at least provides a, an outlet for that part of your brain, at least to me. And I think that that's super duper important. And as you say, fans are putting on roles, cheering or cheering for the baby face, booing the heel. And that's something that like anyone can do it. Like, this is the thing is I have. So I got into wrestling in 2013 um, as like a fan. And I've probably taken 10, 12 people to their first wrestling shows. And never once have I taken someone to a live wrestling show and they've been like, oh, I wish we hadn't done that. <laughs> hmm. Like, it's always, they are always into it. They're always standing and cheering. They're always excited because there's a part of your brain that just wants, like, that wants clean cut conflict, right? Like, as much as we talk about how cool Shades of Grey are in art, and they are, obviously, oh, uh, they're incredible. There's also value to the black and white story as far as mm. catharsis and joy and fun. Uh, and I think that people forget that, like, sometimes art's just cool because it's fun. What, what do you think the difference is? Because Bart makes this distinction between boxing and wrestling. And what do you, but what do you think in terms of, I don't know if you follow mixed martial arts at all or any sort of combat sport or even, let's say, any sport. I mean, Troy has tried to convince me that there's, like, this immense battle that's taking place in baseball between the pitcher <laughs> and the batter. And he's talked about how in Japan it's like, you know, the, the, these two worlds. What is it, Troy? That uh, it's much more tense, and I'm like, whatever, man. It's an all right sport, okay? I won't. <laughs> Troy, hate, you but and Troy I have loves to talk about this because I have an obsession with how I can't get into baseball, but it's the thing I most <laughs> want to get into. Okay, Troy, it, it, Troy, it, it tell does him. kind of tell feel like about... people who are really into it have a secret that you just aren't privy to, right? Yeah, my dad is one of those people, and it drives me fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to understand it so bad. There's like this beautiful poetry happening that I just can't access, and it drives me nuts. Yeah, so so much of it's about small small little movements and and little intricacies that if you're not paying attention to, everything is just super boring. Yeah, I get that. I don't want to get so, baseball so bad. <laughs> so so, but like, if you take uh, a sport like a pugilistic sport, and I don't know if we can then by extension talk about even like a sport like basketball or American football or tennis or golf, even. But why is wrestling unique and different? Why is it, is it is it a matter of degree or is there something qualitatively distinct about wrestling as a spectacle of excess? Well, there are two big things. One is it's scripted. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of fights are scripted, too. You know, they got the mobsters in the back with the money. Right. Sure. <laughs> but see, the difference is when you say that, right, that's theorizing about what's happening in right. the back. Wrestling fans are willfully ignoring what's happening in the back. Ah, yes. Okay. You know what I mean? They're like, they you have, to, you have to buy in, suspend your disbelief, pretend it's not scripted. Obviously, wrestling, uh, you know, many of wrestling's most famous moments, whether tragic like the death of Owen Hart or um, like game changing like the Montreal Screwjob, are moments where they go off script, right? What's the Montreal Screwjob? Um, the Montreal Screwjob was during the Monday Night Wars, which is when WCW and WWE were competing for, for rating shares. Um, Bret Hart, who was one of the WWE stars, signed with WCW. Um, and they had a show in Montreal, which is, and he's Canadian. He was famously a big deal in Canada. Um, and they had this, he had this match against Shawn Michaels, who was an American wrestler that everyone loved. And the thing was that he was like, I, I'm happy to drop the belt. I'll do it on any show. I just don't want to do it in Canada. 
Like mm. I can do it on the next show when we go back to Boston or whatever. I'll drop it there. It's fine. I just don't want to do it. It seems fucked up for me to drop the belt in front of all these people who only see us every couple times a year. We mostly tour in the U.S., whatever. Um, and everyone backstage was like, yeah, 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 totally. That's totally great. Good job. That's what we'll do. Um, and then during the match, uh, Shawn Michaels put on a put a submission maneuver on him and the ref called for a tap out. So the match was over and rang the bell. Uh, Bret Hart never tapped out, was never told that he was supposed to tap out, was told he was going to win the match um, and lost his entire shit for obvious reasons. And it's one of the sort of most famous kayfabe breaking moments. And I, so, like I said, you those those moments are historically significant for wrestling. Those moments mm-hmm. where you get away from the script. But that's only because the script is sort of in the back of everyone's mind. Um, like, you know that it's there. Obviously, like little kids don't. And that's always a really cool thing to see is like little kids who really think it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's awesome. That like that's some of the coolest shit. I and I wish I could feel that way. All the or time. if you're the dude in the meme, you know, it's still real to me. Damn it's it, still real to me. <laughs> damn it. Yeah, I mean that guy's a goddamn hero. <laughs> um, that guy's a fucking absolute legend. But um, but yeah. So it's it's a, it's the fact that it's scripted, right? And that we that we know that, and we're suspending that disbelief. And what comes from that is sort of this sense of of bigness. Everyone's playing big, larger than life characters. Bart describes it as. Uh, compares it to judo, right? Bart says in judo, when a wrestler is or when a fighter is down, they're not really down. They're just making, they're waiting to make their next move to get on top or whatever. Whereas a wrestler, mm. when a wrestler is down, they are profoundly and deeply down. Everything mm. about their body language is like, I am trying to resist defeat. They make these incredibly expressive faces when they're in submissions. They crawl towards the ropes. They scream. They flop around crazy. Um, they profoundly show that they're on the brink of defeat, on the brink of something, and that sort of bigness to the performance um, distinguishes it from other sports because it gives you, it lays the psychology bare, right? That when people, there's a reason why people who talk about wrestling in sort of annoying, stupid ways um, refer to wrestling storytelling as wrestling psychology. Um, that's what, when people describe the storytelling of a match, they talk about the match's psychology. I don't get why, or I mean, I, I do get why it's this. Um, I just think it's silly. But hmm. it, it it is this, though, right? It's that you're laying the psychology of each person bare. Each choice, each thing is made very obvious, right? That's, for instance, why uh, some of the best wrestling finishers are all moves that have a beat before the actual move happens. Like the Stone Cold Stunner, for instance, he kicks them in the stomach, then hits the finisher. By kicking them in the stomach, he gives the crowd a moment to enter his mind and realize what's happening in the hmm. instant between the kick and the actual move. Um, and that accessibility... And not just accessibility, but the fact that it's trying to present to you with that accessibility separates it from something like boxing, which even if even if rigged by like the various mobsters in the back, like you don't know who they rigged it for or how or why. Um, and they're certainly trying to pretend like it's not. <laughs> um, and in wrestling, they're trying to pretend that everything's the biggest thing in the world. Like every little moment is huge. Um, and that hugeness mm. is part of what makes it so is what gives it that that shining light that casts no darkness. Right. The hugeness is what makes it so unambiguous. <laughs> Um, you can't mm. play shades of gray. There's a certain broadness of performance at which you can't really play shades of gray anymore. And wrestling mm. lives there. Yeah. I think it was in one of the articles yeah. you sent Lux that said that you can't have an ironic character really in wrestling because there yeah. has to oh, be this the, break down the wall between the inner self and the exterior action. Totally. Um, and that was in the Tetsuya Naito article, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and Naito's the only wrestler in the entire world that's ever pulled off something like irony. I- okay, I just gotta say that I'm, I'm not even kidding. So I'm sitting at my desk in the Sydney Policy Lab, and you know, it's it's I mean, it's not like a serious 
environment where you know the the sky is falling. But you know, it's a professional environment, nevertheless. Um, as professional as an rarely, environment, to be fair, I'm rarely ever in those. Well, no, I was going to say, as professional of an environment you can have at a university, which is still pretty lax, uh, you know, <laughs> but still. So I'm sitting there and I actually started getting teary eyed while I was reading this essay. At the end of it, I got so into the story of this this Naito character. Um, just for people listening who haven't read it, can you just say a little bit about sure. the story? Just I can, give it a minute, a minute synopsis. Yeah, I can try and do this in a minute. He's one of my favorite wrestlers in the world, so I may ramble a little bit to so cut me off if I do. But <laughs> okay. um, yeah, so Naito was a wrestler. He was originally like a pretty straightforward babyface wrestler, like really flippy, cool moves guy. Um, he won the G1 tournament, which is supposed to decide the main event of Wrestle Kingdom, the biggest Japanese wrestling tournament. He beat his mentor, the old top star, uh, Tanahashi. The thing is that when he won, he declared himself the new top star, which was like a big breach of social protocol in Japan. So everyone turned on him in a way that rest Japanese wrestling fans rarely ever do. And it was sort of impossible to get them back on his side. So rather than keep him around, they sent him to Mexico, um, where he trained in Mexico for a while and he wrestled there. And he came back as a member of this group called Los Ingobernables, the Ungovernables. And instead of being like, he just like acted like he didn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> he would like saunter to the ring in a suit and like get undressed in the ring like not even in his ring gear. Um, he won the Intercontinental Championship and proceeded to just destroy it all the time. Like he'd throw it on the ground or spit on it or leave it behind when he left. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, there's always been this sort of sub idea that he wanted to get back what he lost, the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. Um, and he's been trying to do that for, for years. And it's this thing where it's this guy who projects so much disrespect to everything and so much indifference, but has this undercurrent of like love and care that is made in this guy who like so many people connect to so intensely because it's such a real type of guy. Um, the guy who cares so much that he can't express how much he cares about a thing. Instead, he acts like it doesn't matter. Uh, that's mm. such a real thing. And he projects in such a real way that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly moving story. It's one of my favorite, he's like top five favorite wrestlers for me in the world. And th this is kind of wise that his, his real life story in parallel to his wrestling story makes so much sense. And also is like profoundly moving to me. Hmm. Yeah, there is kind of an irony there. It's a tragic irony because it's almost like within the kayfabe that is his the golden boy babyface character, it's almost as though the turn to the heel was a kayfabe that the babyface character puts on because that's the only way that he can figure out how to deal with the fact that he's not uh, that he wasn't beloved, that he wasn't accepted as the top star. Oh, so there's kind of like right? some enfolding of layers going on here. Yeah, and that bears itself out within the within what happened, right? Because he he's never changed since he came back from from Mexico. Really, like he's gotten a little more emotionally open with his like as like his group of like little weirdo friends has become like more friendly. But for the most part, he's still been the same like I don't care, tranquilo, like snarky guy. But somewhere in there, everyone started to fall back in love with him, and now he's like one of the three most, if not the most popular star in Japan. Um, hmm. And people fell back in love with him because I think exactly what you're saying, that part of it became clear that within the kayfabe, there was this, there was, so it's, it's Tetsuo Naito, the guy playing Tetsuo Naito, the babyface wrestler who is playing Tetsuo Naito, the heel who doesn't give mm. a shit. Mm -hmm. um, and people kind of put that together and then they're able to connect with that because that is such a real thing and so good. And, and speaks to such a real experience. And like the most, I mean, it's, there's a clip in that article I sent um, where you can see a gif of the crowds booing him. This is before I went to Mexico, the crowds booing him and you can see him visually trying not to cry. Hmm. Um, and that like, 
that is just such a fucking moment to me. <laughs> the idea that this guy is sitting in front of this crowd of tens of thousands of people trying a thing he's worked his whole life for, and they've turned on him totally to the point where he's about to fucking sob, right? And he's still that guy, but now he has this layer of ironic detachment that is so clearly a self-defense mechanism that you can't help but love him anyways. Do you think mm. a character of that kind of depth could exist in like the American scene? Or is that kind of yeah, peculiar I mean, to Japan? Some some do. Um, no, I'll tell you this: none of them exist in uh, uh, the WWE. That's for sure. Um, that would be too much. That goes back to the profit thing. They just don't stick to things long enough to do anything like that. But um, you definitely have you definitely have had characters with that kind of depth. Um, you've definitely had characters. I don't think of a really good one in the indies now. I mean, oh, one, one really good sort of classic example of this is um, there was there was okay. So this was a WWE thing. This is one of their rare big successes. Is they had a group, um, or they had a wrestler named Daniel Bryan, who organically became a big star, and they made the story of the show. And so all the fans were like, "Hey, make him a champion." And they made the entire story of Raw for almost a year. Raw is their flagship show. For almost an entire year, the story of fake a fake corporation making sure that Daniel Bryan never became champion. <laughs> in parallel to a real corporation that refused to make Daniel Bryan the champion. <laughs> and that was the story. And it became all about the sort of fan unity. And the depth of his character became so real because he like he brought out so much of like his personal struggles with like being a kind of smaller dude, but like loving this business so much, blah, blah, blah. And it became so deep and so moving. And that's still WrestleMania 30 when he beats Triple H and then has to wrestle the three way with uh, Dave Batista, who became Drax um, and Randy Orton. Uh, and he wins. That's maybe my favorite wrestling pair of wrestling matches of all time, just because they that has the kind of character work and that kind of depth. Um, it's not quite as layered as Naito, but it has the exact the same kind of character progression of like A to B to C to D to E that that really matters um and i think that that's you can get that in any wrestling it just all depends on understanding i mean it depends on two things right it depends on booking a character to put them in a position to succeed and it depends on your audience like your audience has to buy in right i mean this goes back to pwr so okay so this is a really good story of the dependent on audience buy-in right um we did the show, the Necro Slam, the show in the Bone Realm. We had it all booked out, except for who was going to fight the main bad guy to try to win the title. Because everyone else was doing something, and for various reasons, the two people we wanted to do it uh, could not. So we were like, what the fuck do we do? Right? We wanted to put the bell on this guy. He's not available. We had a backup plan. They're not available either. What the fuck are we going to do? This is the big blow off to like a year and a half long story. What's going to happen? Um, and we were sitting outside, and I was smoking a cigarette, and I was like, what if we let Pugginhead win? For context, Pugginhead is a puppet. Um, a puppet who pretends to who we all pretend is a real life uh, eight year old boy. <laughs> um, and everyone was like, "Are you serious?" And I was like, "Yeah." Well, it doesn't matter if it's weird, right? If the audience thinks it's cool, it's cool. And so we were all like, "We got nothing better to do," and we did it, and it ex- the fucking crowd went psycho for it. <laughs> and it was awesome. Um, but you don't get that unless the audience decides we're in on this puppet, right? The same way the Naito story could have been a total fucking disaster if the audience had been like, nah, fuck this dude. 
Um, like mm. the audience made that story happen. You don't get this sort of layered Naito babyface playing heel, playing babyface, playing heel, playing babyface character or whatever. Um, unless the audience puts him there. Is is that so the I don't know shit about wrestling in Japan. So that level that Naito is wrestling at, is that the equivalent of the American WWE? That's the top promotion yes. in Japan? Yes. New Japan Wrestling is so top is there, in Japan. And, and then is there – so then you kind of said that there are some problems of um, – with the profit-seeking motives of WWE that seem to contaminate – this otherwise the purity of the mythology that might exist maybe at the independent realm in the states how is it maintained in a in a big show like japan as far as i know and i'm not the best expert on this but i I follow fairly closely for a long long time new japan has basically just been owned by the wrestlers um not the wrestlers who are working but it's like uh it's like you wrestle there you retire they hire you to work as a booker or as like an agent for a match or a booker you work your way up that way. You become a member of like several of the people on the board or owners of it are former NJPW wrestlers, basically. Um, mm. And the wrestling also in Japan, this maybe is kind of important. Wrestling also in Japan is a much, <laughs> a much more profound uh, social function because, or social history. Like in the U S like I said, it started out as a carny thing, right? In Japan, it was a post world war two thing. This wrestler named Rid- uh, Ricky Dozan, would or really uh, whatever there's a wrestler in japan i can't i'm not i don't speak japanese i'll butcher his name no matter how i try and do it um hmm. he would go around and he'd wrestle american wrestlers dressed up as like the gis who had just recently occupied japan and he'd hmm. win right it would be this big story about the japanese guy overcoming hmm. the big bad american dude um and that's how wrestling started in japan so wrestling is always in japan had sort of a a clearly meaningful semiotic function in a way that it does in the U S and I think that there's a sort of more of a respect for it as an art form there because of that. Um, so I don't think you ever could viably sell out NJPW to ads in the same way you could with WWE because to do that would take away from this art form that like, you know, everyone agrees with. It would be like if, um, if like Broadway started selling ads in the middle of like the producers, right? <laughs> like you just, right. you can't do that. People would lose their whole donuts and the same is true with i think wrestling in japan the same thing there's a certain respect for it as an art form because of its semiotic function in its origin dude you know what troy you know how we talk about the difference between the nba and maybe the other three big professional sport leagues in america do you think that there is more of a as lux is framing it there's more of a semiotic function with basketball in that the players were allowed to get caught up in their dramas because their social media kayfabe personas and because of their media kayfabe personas you got lebron who's like the socially conscious activist Uh, he's also the greatest player in the world and uh has his fake hair and then you've got like (laughs) backpack wearing russell westbrook and like he wears his nerdy glasses Glasses. Do you think that they're trying to in some way emulate this thing? And I don't know if it's they're trying to emulate the Vince McMahon model, which there's another professional sports league that is doing that. The UFC is intentionally mimicking 
Vince McMahon's WWE model. And you can see it by the way they've flooded the market with shows, the way that they ran their pay-per-view uh, shows, um, the way that they also had their kind of free ones that they would do online, but that was all to funnel you towards the big pay-per-view events. And then now they're kind of changing it and they've got their own individual platform that they started with ESPN. So they're trying to – It's but, but I wonder because they're trying to straddle the, the quote-unquote real unscripted sport, but they're also trying to maybe layer it with this other semiotic function. Do you think that maybe there's something there, Troy? Yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking as you're saying that about how, you know, baseball is basically trying to fight that evolution, right? By right. depersonalizing everybody and punishing guys when they sort of start to form identity or their identities start to leak out onto the field, right? If they bat flip too hard or if they celebrate um, after, you know, hitting a home run or, or whatever it is, they get punished for it. So it seems like with the social media age, that evolution's kind of natural for these huge businesses and you either have to sort of stifle it or kind of buy into it to some respect mm. yeah because with baseball i mean there's still a semiotic regime but it's a semiotic regime that is very controlled and manicured according to tradition according to whatever it is that the commissioner and the owners and whoever else think is like right for the american sport right well I mean, whereas basketball yeah go well, ahead baseball it's just truly absurd because like mike trout that guy has like what is the math on him is like he's like the best player to ever be like to, he's the best player by whatever age he is by like orders of magnitude um per some statistics and like no i could not recognize him on a poster oh he's so boring he's <laughs> so incredibly boring despite being this all i know incredible about him is he loves weather yeah. <laughs> and he has no neck <laughs> yeah well i well i just learned that right now um <laughs> But yeah, like that's that is fucking wild to me. Yeah, it's, that this it's guy is crazy. like the LeBron of baseball, and no one even knows who the fuck he is. But yeah, but it really is a constructed form because I mean, the vast majority of people who pay attention to baseball and spend money on it are you know fifty and up white guys. So they're manicuring the image, like Austin was saying, for that audience. So it is it is still a kind of kayfabe. It's just a really boring and shit one for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, so, I mean, I guess we got to have you on more to talk more about this because I'll be honest, when when I was like, when I think about wrestling, I was a wrestling fan when I was a kid, right? Like, But it, it ended with the end of Hulk Hogan's reign when he lost to the Ultimate Warrior. Was that WrestleMania 7? I believe so. Or 11? Uh, yeah, I think Something seven. like that, think 7 or 11. Seven. Oh, I cried. I cried <laughs> when he lost to the Ultimate Warrior so hard. It was like my hero had been assassinated it was the worst thing but i didn't i you know so and then at that point you know i'm like 10 11 something like that whatever it was and um and and i didn't maintain an interest in it beyond that like you know i would i would pay attention periodically and um, i knew some of the names like the the next generation like the razor ramones and stuff like that who were a little bit like after that event but i the pinnacle for me was andre the giant uh, Macho Man, Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, that time period, right? Yeah, sure. Um, Macho Man, and best so I, ever do it. He was great, man. Um, but for me, it, 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 I never really thought about it seriously. And then I read that Roland Bart essay, and it like opened up my world to to thinking about wrestling in a different way. You know? Yeah. Um, well, it's I, super fascinating. I think the comparison to to like ancient to Greek or or even Japanese or um or like Renaissance Italian theater is like extremely on point. It, 
it's a space like Aristotle said this, right? Like theater is a space to engage in catharsis mm. um, and wrestling. I mean, that's where the word the word methexis is a word that derives from the theater, which is a participation. And um, it's this idea that the audience is participating literally in the the goings on on the stage and vice versa. And that there is this there isn't just this simple like subject object or primary secondary or audience and performer distinction. There is a melding, if you will, of any sort of divisions. I think that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, like to just to draw another PWR example, our fans throw cups at the heels, just plastic beer cups. <laughs> um, and almost makes me want to go to Austin, brother. Yeah, hey, if you if you ever <laughs> have the chance to come see a show, we'd love to have you. But um, they throw cups, and what happens is almost every heel wrestler on our roster has their own special way of dealing with the cups now. Um, mm. like Bolero tries to catch them in his hat. Uh, Skip smacks him with his robot hands. Chad Blitz used to catch them, spit in them, and throw them back. Like <laughs> everyone has their own way of dealing with it, and that's like an entire way of expressing the character and way of interacting with the crowd that is entirely the crowd dictated. Like we, mm. at no point were we like, "What happens if they throw cups? What should we do?" Like no, none of us saw that coming. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, they invented it just by doing it. And so that that is the mythics you're talking about, like that happens in wrestling all the damn time. Um, and it's it's a huge it, like I said, it's, it's the biggest part of it. And you see it constantly um, in shows. And in fact, another failure mm-hmm. of WWE is that like they don't really listen to the audience. Uh, <laughs> famously, so they they ignore what the audience wants uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the time. And by doing so, they cheapen their own shows, because if you have the audience feel like they're part of the the thing if they're engaged with the catharsis then the show itself feels more alive because they feel more alive Mm. Mm. that's interesting um i say we go ahead and wrap it up here and put like a little ellipsis at the end of this and we'll get you back on and we can talk about some some later stuff because i mean i feel like we could talk about this for hours because even just digging into the articles that you sent um we could probably do like a nice parsing of them but just for people that are listening can you can you give um the title of the articles and where they can find the ones that you sent to us sure um they're on spectacleofexcess.com which is uh the only wrestling website that i read regularly um because they really think about it and then the naito article is called the stars his destiny on wrestling caring and tetsuya naito um the other one the one about kairos is called hands in the air Kevin and Generico win their titles, and that's also the spectacle of excess. Both of those, and then there's a Roland Bart essay from his book, The Mythology, or from his book Mythologies, on wrestling. Um, those are the three things I sent in, um, and also the Party World Wrestling Facebook page. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then uh, plug yourself, man. Where where can people find you? And yeah, and so like I said, um, like if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at ML Surfboard. Uh, Instagram, it's at Game Boys Pod. You can listen to Game Boys Podcast on iTunes. Mostly, uh, go to Party. Oh, this is the important thing. Uh, right now, so part of World wrestling is like a fan funded event. Like we make money, but we also get donations from fans. And right now our Indiegogo is live. And so now is a great time to contribute to that. If you uh, want to uh, get some cool shit, like an exclusive t-shirt or uh, I think a bandana or maybe a cup. I don't remember, um, mm. but there's cool shit. And so you can do that. A at- cup that you can spit in and throw <laughs> at your boss. Yeah. It's because you can spit in and throw at anyone you want. I mean, I'm yeah, not work violence. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Man. I'm not going to stop you. Um, fill it with a milkshake, throw it at some relevant minister. Um, probably, I don't know, throw it at some government guy. Anyways, uh, you can do that at, uh, IGG dot 
ME slash AT slash Bioslam. Our next show is Bioslam. It takes place inside the body of a giant snake. Um, and yeah, you can find that there. Find me on Twitter at ML Surfboard. Uh, look up Not Even a Show on YouTube. And obviously check out all the Wisecrack stuff to see the stuff that Austin and I are doing over there. Sweet. Yeah, uh, this has been super duper rad. I still feel radically underqualified to listen to like several of y'all's episodes. And they're all with these like brilliant thinkers. And I'm just like, I like wrestling and uh, I write comedy. No, no, this has dude, been this so perfect, interesting. Man. I can tell you, I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of a whole world here. Yo, yeah, for sure. There's, I'd be happy to come back on and go deeper. I can, we can do, we can think of some cool ideas for how to approach that. I'd be happy to do it. Let's do it, brother. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. All right. So that interview with with Lux was amazing. I'm so glad that you guys had the idea to do this because. Obviously, I know nothing about wrestling, but um, for a novice... Were you ever a fan as a kid or anything? Never. Never. I don't think I've ever even watched it once other than like in passing when I was like in a bar or at someone's house and it was on. I've never actually sat down and watched wrestling. But here's the thing. You like metal music, and I feel like metal operates under a similar kind of mythology, kayfabe kind of thing, right? Like you look at a band like Ghost. I mean, that's fucking kayfabe, man. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think the difference is there's a lot of metal that's like party metal, which is pretty similar to the wrestling thing. In fact, they use it a lot in wrestling from what I know, like um, like White Zombie and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I, I don't like that stuff. I think that stuff is kind of generic and terrible. Although, you know, I get why some people find it to be fun. It certainly is fun. A lot of metal I like is underground and artsy and experimental and and stuff like that. So that's that's a different sort of genre, I think. It has a different sort of um it's just it's different logic that applies to it. Mm. But then also I like like the 80s stuff like Slayer and Metallica and Megadeth and stuff. So maybe that stuff is a little bit similar. I don't know. Yeah, that mm. was I, I don't decry wrestling at all. I think maybe eighties metal, you know, not the hair stuff, but you know, the underground thrash stuff. Maybe that is my wrestling. Who knows? Hmm. What would be your wrestling then? I mean, MMA. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Or like manscaping li- stuff. The <laughs> manscaping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm probably kayfabe to the hilt, brother. Um, <laughs> no, but for real. Uh, in terms of, I was thinking a lot about mixed martial arts and 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 boxing while I was reading some of the articles and then while I was talking with him because there actually has been a conscious decision I said this in the interview but there's a conscious decision by Dana White who's the president of the UFC to actually emulate Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon's model with the WWE and um they're starting to really focus more on like uh like fighter profiles so that you can actually go behind the scenes and you see them train and you see them with their families and and they're trying to create a character and that matters so much with regards to audience investment into the product. And, um, you know, the UFC just got bought by WME, for Christ's sake, which is William Morris Endeavor, which is the largest um, agency, talent agency in the world. So it just got purchased by them for over $4 billion, a couple, like I think it was last year, the year before. So the... The crossover between athletics and entertainment isn't something that's hidden. It is very intentional to the forefront um, of, of what they're trying to do with their promotion. So, 
Yeah, I think that is. It's because I do. You do get invested. You care about people. Like all the bullshit that goes on with Conor McGregor. He gets arrested for doing this and he throws a dolly through a bus window and all these people are, you know, filing lawsuits against him now and he has to settle them in court and like that shit matters. And oh, who did, did Conor McGregor get this girl pregnant even though he's got like his, his other girl that he's been with for like 15 years and he talks so glowingly about her and all of these things, but he's, you know, banging all these other people and Having lived in Dublin, I have heard many story about how he is not exactly the faithful father that uh, a lot of people tried to portray him as as many years ago. He's a bit of a party boy. Um, but like, like these are things that all fill out, if you will, the character that is Conor McGregor, not the person who's there in his quiet moments or on Sundays when he's at church or when he's just walking around Dublin. Who knows, man? I, I don't fucking know because there's so much of this stuff that is spun with PR that um, – there's an intentional effort to make personas and characters in MMA that wasn't that way when it was first starting, you know? It was almost like purely about the combat. There are no rules. This is raw. There are There's no symbolic order was kind of the idea, right? There's no rules. Anything goes. Pure expression of strength. And that's how it was built, even though that's obviously not entirely accurate. In terms of degrees, it was definitely much more in that vein. But now it's that semiotic layer is much more robust. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. You know, one thing I was thinking about during the interview that I wanted to bring up that maybe would have been too uh, tangential is, you know, with the decline in religious participation in the West, Mm -hmm. um, you have this lack of of people to imitate, right? So you have like an imitatio Christi, right? And like a... Um, imitation of the saints and all that kind of stuff, right? Models for you to base yourself off of and the identities you can mimic to form your own identity, right? As a stepping stone to forming your own identity. And as that declines, people aren't just going to like not do that. It's necessarily human to do that. And they're going to look towards, as people do TV and movies and, and music and whatnot for those things, right? But the thing that those, what those lack that wrestling and some of the, you know, sports seems to have is when you, see someone on TV or in a movie, you know that they're acting and then they don't act that way when they're off screen, when you're watching them on YouTube during interviews or whatever, right? And so it kind of breaks the spell. Having this kayfabe thing, it almost like says, no, we're going to do this all the time. Um, Mm. We're always going to be in character. So you know how important this character is. And that sort Mm. of makes you want to imitate it in a way, right? To kind of include that as part of your identity because it seems important. Um, to that person who you respect or admire or whatever, right? Mm. It has it has this this new sort of um, like impetus to it that it seems like the other uh, forms of celebrity just lack. So yeah, I do think There's, you're right that it's going to infect more, not infect in the necessarily bad way, but it's going to become like the new logic maybe of of especially sports. I, I think you'll I think you'd like this and for people out there listening, there's a website called Everyday Analysis. I think it's everydayanalysis.org. I'm not hundred percent sure, but Everyday Analysis, they have an article that I believe was written by Isabel Millar, who's like become my new favorite cultural critic. She's a Lacanian, I think she's doing a PhD on like Lacan and culture and stuff like that. But she is absolutely insightful to the max. But the title of the essay is um, oh God, I can't remember, but it's it's like God's not dead; He's on Instagram, and 
And it's kind of similarly talking about this, this idea of a sort of transformation of religious worship, but in a, in a different way, but through like a psychoanalytic lens. But if you just go to everyday analysis and type is like type in like God is on Instagram, um, you'll find it. It's great. That's awesome. All right. So for our final segment, we're doing the sticky leaves. This is where one of us tells us about whatever it is that's providing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? So I'll keep this super short, but lately I've been making a concerted effort to read literature in the morning, uh, nonfiction stuff before I start my day, sort of as a, a morning meditation, if you will. And I have been going through Ovid's Metamorphoses. Have you ever read this before, Troy? No. So... Ovid is an ancient Roman poet who lived around the time of Jesus, and he famously gets exiled for really uncertain reasons. He just offends Caesar, and he gets exiled for the rest of his life and dies in exile despite protestations or appeals to come back even after uh, Caesar's death. Um, but he doesn't get granted that, and he dies in exile. But Ovid is famously one of the great... Uh, articulators of Roman Greek mythology. So you have like Homer and uh, you have uh, Ovid and then you have, oh God, I'm trying to remember. I mean, you have obviously the poets and things like that, like Aeschylus and whatnot um, and Sophocles. But um, there are these great uh, writers of epics and Ovid's Metamorphoses is one of the really kind of Famous ones that inspired later writers, you know, like John Milton and things like that, and even like Dante and stuff who are drawing from these sources. As a matter of fact, I believe in Dante's um, writings, I believe Ovid has a very central role. Um, so, because uh, there's, oh God, it's Virgil is his companion, who's obviously one of the other great epic mm -hmm. writers. And then uh, I believe Ovid is somebody who ha who factors very heavily in the story. But anyway, um, I've been reading this, and it's just, it's really been a lovely retread of stories that, you know, we're probably familiar with just by soaking up pop culture. You hear terms and names like Narcissus and Echo and uh, Jupiter, who's the god Zeus, and, you know, Saturn, which is actually where we get our word Saturday from, um, uh, you know, Neptune and Juno and uh, these these words that we're familiar with. And then, of course, they have their Greek equivalents uh, that, that we're familiar with. And it, so there's a lot of familiarity, but just going over and rereading the stories has just been so enjoyable for me. I um, One of the things that I've really been struck by more than anything is it seems that there is a radically different the only way I can think of it is different paradigm by which the ancient world views the world than we do today. And I know that making such simple declaratory statements don't often hold, but in this instance, I think it does. And it's precisely that we now view the world post-enlightenment, post-modernization with an optimism this view of progress that we can change the world for the better, that there is actually a way, whether it's there's salvation at the end in the Christian rhetoric or like some sort of uh, revolutionary, there's some sort of de-alienated future, in the future uh, that, that we can aim towards or that we can construct. The, the, the kind of liberal idea of, you know, the 
arc of history bends towards justice, there's something positive at the end of the rainbow. The ancient world did not view that view things that way. The ancient world views the world uh, as dictated by fate, by destiny, Cyclical. but it almost it's cyclical. Um, you know, uh, Ovid famously starts off Metamorphoses with this fall from the Golden Age to the Silver to the Bronze, and we're presently in the Iron Age, which is very similar to the Indian Yugas and in Hinduism, which is, again, a fourfold cycle. Um, and then it kind of reverts again. But the point is, is that you have no control over that reversion back to a Golden Age or to start a new cycle. You are simply subject to the winds uh, of time you're subject to the fates and this constant paradox this tension this contradictory space in which you reside isn't one that you can really you can try you can test the fates but you're likely going to get punished or you might be rewarded as a hero but maybe that will only benefit you in the short term it's not going to actually usher in the new eschaton or something like that you know like there isn't really this linear progress timeline that you can kind of like aim towards and then get out of the present age or the cycle that is degraded somehow so it's like we're in this degraded world uh maybe there's an explanation for it because of some theory of the ages or something like that um we don't really have the answers for that but we know that things aren't great tragedy insists but nevertheless um this is where we are and you know a man of character, a, a hero of character is a type of person who does X, Y, and Z. And all of these stories then recount these various different iterations of people who are either tragic figures or heroic figures or comedic figures or whatever. And it's just such an interesting, you know, we're talking in the shitty minute about kind of like going into a different paradigm of thought. I've been spending time, I feel like, in a different framework almost a hermeneutical framework by which to take up the world and it's been really lovely i've, I've been really enjoying it no that's really cool dude i i was thinking as you were talking about that that one of my favorite things to do is to you know, like reread plato's dialogues just to get into this like other space right it's something mm. about reading you know uh pieces from a different time period but especially from you know like the axial age time period when mm. it's just so diametrically different in ways you can pretty easily capture when you read it, whereas things that are intuitive for them are just so kind of radical mm. and 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 begging for explanation and for and for rationalization for us because it's just it's just not intuitive to us. Mm. That it's so great. It's kind of like humbling because then you realize, man, what would they think about the things that I find to be entirely intuitive, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a great exercise, I think, um, to have that kind of. Uh, humility, epistemic humility about your time period. And it's not to sort of stifle thought, but to make you think more um, about the things that are comfortable for you, but that would be alienating for somebody from a different time period. Um, mm. And I love that. I think that's really healthy and it's fun and interesting just to get out of that um, sort of really comfortable form of thinking that we, we so easily fall into. Yeah. Do you know what's so lovely about that? is it's the opposite approach of most critical literary analysis, which is a deconstruction of the old, right? Or some sort of reader response to the old, which erects the contemporary framework as in Barber's terms, as we're going through the book, as the sort of transcendent plane of interpretation. 
and then we can then derive, if you will, theories about the old world and subject them to uh, maybe a more refined theory of analysis or something like that. But when you can have that other kind of, and I'm not saying that all literary analysis does this, obviously people are aware of this, but um, this sort of like caricatured version at least. Um, but then when, when you can go the opposite direction and you can actually allow these sort of more traditional or ancient ways of viewing the world actually contest us and our entire framework of progress mm. and allow us to think, well, maybe there is something, not necessarily that we're just, you know, kicking against the, what is it, kicking against the goads or whatever, um, that that maybe there is a sort of um, fated destiny. Maybe there is a sense in which we need to linger with tragedy and we need to at least pause in our naive optimism about changing and transforming the world or the material conditions, not to discourage us from political activities and to um, create a sense of acceptance of injustice, but rather to complicate it, to kind of think if there are maybe richer ways that we can confront our current world and recognize that our world and our interpretation of the world and therefore our prescriptions that issue therefrom are themselves contingent and therefore contaminated. And I don't mean that in the sense they're contaminated from the pure, but in the sense that everything is always contaminated. And so there's this really nice um, dialectic in in juxtaposing and, and kind of trying to inform these two different, completely different paradigms of, of thought together. And I, I think it's really, it's been really beneficial. It's really interesting. So. Yeah, I think especially in our time, we can do with that kind of contestation because, you know, one thing I like to think about is Although I hate the um, how will history judge you argument, it's like one of the worst possible arguments a person can make. Um, there is something interesting about the fact that, you know, obviously we have this kind of linear, progressive, salvific model of history, which is pretty popular in the West, right, for the last several hundred years. Um, and think about what World War II did to that, right? It, it massive blow in the idea that. The, the arc of history bends towards justice, right? Um, think about in a hundred years what climate change will have done to the world, drastically probably going to outstrip what World War II did. And how will we look back on history at that point? Will we still have this notion of, of linearity, of progression towards perfect goodness? Mm -hmm. Or will something like a more cyclical model, like, like you know, um, ancients, uh, in the Western world had be a more accurate or satisfactory way of thinking about history. Um, mm. I don't think that it's faded either way, but it's interesting to think about, you know, that's some contestation from the future uh, as mm. well as contestation from the past. And um, that should at least, I think that hypothetical should at least challenge us to think about the, the model that exists now, which is one of the biggest problems, right? The notion that the world's getting better and will continue to get better is part of why no one does shit to resolve the problems now, because they just assume that it's fated to get better. We're, yeah, well, of course we're going to solve climate change. It's just a matter of, you know, who's the uh, inventor to come along and then solve it. Eventually, it'll happen. Mm. Right? That's part of the problem. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, that's, cool, that's what I've been up to. It's good. It's been fun. I'm enjoying it. All right, so shall we close this one out? Yeah, let's do it.
Yeah, just a reminder to everybody to join the Patreon uh, through our several tiers to get access to things like bonus episodes, the monthly newsletter that we do, access to the Democracy Motherfuckers poll um, for our regular patron-sponsored episodes, um, mm-hmm. and also to leave us a review on iTunes, five-star rating and review. If you ask a question in your review, we'll answer it on air. Yep, yep, yep. You can also email us, owlsatdownpodcast at gmail.com. Obviously, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff is uh, as, as well. But if you want to send a longer email, ask a question or something like that, feel free to do so. Yeah, Sweet. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, man. Just one more thing, dude. What is going on? Dasta Dania Marikonski. Marikonski.